0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 66, The Road to Revolution. Last week we gave Henry a bit of thoroughly well-deserved grief and explained some of the reasons why his reign was so unpopular. We talked about all those injustices and financial exactions and all that sort of thing, but I'm rather conscious that none of it was particularly new. The gross amount of money exacted, for example, was nowhere near as much as John or Richard's time, and Henry was nowhere near as exacting or as predatory in his use of debt, for example, as a form of control. He basically did indeed Observe the Magna Carta. The point is that if Henry's shortcomings had been part of a glorious and successful regime that beat up the French and extended the prestige of the monarchy, he might just have got away with the foreigners' stuff. But it wasn't, and he didn't. We should start with Poitou, of course, just simply to remind you that by the time we reach 1242, Henry has already lost a couple of wars in Poitou and is looking like a loser. It also brings us back to the relationship between de Montfort and Henry. The last time we met them together, they were in a bad way. They'd had an argument at Saint, with language that showed de Montfort's lack of respect for Henry and the latter's weakness. But in 1243, Henry healed the wounds. He lavishly restored de Montfort to his favour. He gave Eleanor a £500 marriage portion, he pardoned a £1,000 of the couple's debts and he gave them Kenilworth Castle de Montfort was now clearly often at court, witnessing charters. So while the body of grievances were slowly building up in the body politic, de Montfort was actually part of the King's party, rather than the Reform Party. Political reform? What political reform? Nonetheless, between 1245 and forty-eight, he becomes a little less visible at court, because he's back on the farm doing his own thing. And then, in May 1247, he was appointed as the King's lieutenant in Gascony for seven years, which sounds great, but actually could be seen as the beginning of de Montfort's personal road to crisis. Gascony had become even more important to Henry and Queen Eleanor. On one hand it was a symbol of English prestige, the only possession they still retained on the continent, but also they'd marked it out as an appanage for Prince Edward. This was rather irritating to men like Richard of Cornwall, who felt they also had rights and interests there. But hey, that was the decision Henry had made. Now that Gascony was something of a focus for the English, it was clear that the province was something of a basket case. In 1225, Gascony had without doubt voted for the English king, but for perfectly sensible reasons of trade and personal interest. They had absolutely no intention whatsoever of having any English king mess with their privileges and autonomy, and ducal control was something of a challenge. The ducal domain lands were widely spread and dispersed. Towns like Bordeaux had a lot of independence. Many of the nobles held their land by what was called a lodial tenure, i.e. they owed it freely as of right, not as a feudal grant from the duke. So, the allegiance they gave the duke, or the King of England in this case, was a pretty tenuous thing, and they fiercely protected rights, which made them almost like mini-kings, such as, for example, the right to wage war. Now, the greatest of these nobles was a man called Gaston de Bayern. Bayern was basically a semi-independent lordship in the south of Gascony, nestled up against the Pyrenees, and therefore just above the piri Gaston had been born in 1224, and his life is marked by an aversion to English rule. He therefore intrigued away with the Spanish kingdoms of Aragon and Castile to the south, and the French king to the north. The kings of Castile and Aragon also posed something of a potential threat, since they had claims to the duchy by Henry II's daughter. The king of Navarre, whose lands crossed the Pyrenees, would love to grab a bit of land and was consistently trying to do so. And finally, France had now established Alphonse in Poitiers, and they were therefore now sitting on Gascony's northern borders, looking threatening. In twelve forty-eight, the truce between England and France was due to come to an end. So all these worries came together. There was a very real danger that Gascony could be lost. As it happens, that would have been no financial problem, since at this point it cost more than it brought in. But it would most certainly be disastrous. For, but it would most certainly be disastrous for English and Henry's personal prestige. So Henry was desperate, and de Montfort, for some reason, seemed like the perfect man for the job with his slightly puzzling reputation for military skill. He could in these circumstances name his terms, and so he did. He was to have a warrant for seven years, full disposal of all Gascon revenues, and Henry was also to look after any cost of castles. Henry was to support him with 2,000 marks a year and 50 knights. De Montfort was the king's lieutenant for seven years, effectively replacing the king in the region until the job of pacifying it was done. And he made a good start. By the end of the first year, 1248, he had negotiated an extension to the truce with France and reached agreement with the King of Navarre over his dispute. Now he turned to the job of recovering ducal rights and bringing the duchy to heel. Bull in a china shop is the phrase that springs to mind. Subtle blend of diplomacy and force does not. He arrested people without trial intervened without observing any niceties like truth or justice. And on the way, he managed to gather a few lands for himself, most notably in a case involving the big beast himself, Gaston de Bayerne. In 1250, this led to Gaston putting together the first concerted rising against the Montfort's rule. All of this led to a stream of complaints against the Montfort, which went straight to Henry and the drip, drip, drip of moans and whines wore poor old Henry down. From his point of view, he saw de Montfort sending up the whole place in flames, and spending a fortune to boot. De Montfort, meanwhile, felt increasingly irritated that the king seemed to be receiving delegations from his enemies. And then, in 1250, when Gaston had been defeated by de Montfort, and sent to England, "'Darn me if Henry didn't pardon him at the request of the Queen!' In January 1251, de Montfort had to come home to ask for funds and he did manage to talk Henry into giving them to him. And by May, he had managed to reimpose order in Gascony by force. But from there on in, everything went downhill. In December 1251, de Montfort was in England at York for the marriage of Henry's daughter Margaret and the simmering row between him and Henry broke into open conflict. News had reached them that Gascony was once again in open revolt. The Gascons were accusing de Montfort of having provoked it. Henry forbade de Montfort to go back and deal with the revolt. He tried to Welsh on his agreement to pay de Montfort's expenses and pay for all the castle costs, which was quite clearly part of the deal. He sent commissioners to Gascony to investigate matters and for de Montfort this was public humiliation and political death. Even worse was to follow. Henry then made de Montfort come to Parliament to face his accusers. The Gascons, led by the Archbishop of Bordeaux, alleged that de Montfort had acted with brutal high-handedness, supported by a dossier of supporting evidence. De Montfort responded angrily that their evidence was essentially twaddle, and that Henry had basically reneged on his agreement. Both de Montfort and Henry lost their rags during what looks awfully like a trial. De Montfort demanded that Henry keep the terms of the contract. Henry replied that he would keep no promises to a traitor and a man who had broken his own promises. De Montfort let fly with, who can believe that you are a Christian? I think I've made this point before, but just in case there's any confusion, you just don't say this sort of thing to a king. You bow your head, say yes sir, return to your castle, kick a villain or two and live with it. It's a sign of both de Montfort's towering self-belief and the lack of respect that Henry commands. And then, to cap it all, de Montfort went and won. He had the backing of all the English magnates and in the council Henry and the Gascons stood alone. Henry felt forced to rule in de Montfort's favour. Now, of course, Henry absolutely hated this. I mean, you would, wouldn't you? Who likes to be told what to do when you're supposed to be the man? So, characteristically, he then changed his mind, and all the arguments broke out again. In the end, Henry imposed an agreement that was merely a postponement of things. That the King and or Lord Edward would come to Gascony, and that there would be a truce until this was done. Work started on this straight away, with Henry's delegates going over to Gascony and essentially undoing everything that de Montfort had done and achieved. This was bitterly humiliating for de Montfort. For a while it did look as though he was going to play ball as he went off to northern France. But then, suddenly, he reappeared in Gascony with an army and started laying about him, looking for revenge. Henry intervened. He ordered de Montfort to obey the truce and basically removed him from command. Under these circumstances, de Montfort managed to get himself a remarkably good deal. Under the agreement he made with Lord Edward, he did surrender all his claims in Gascony, but was paid 7,000 marks and the payment of all his debts. Subsequent events in Gascony then justified pretty much everything de Montfort had done. Gaston de Bayonne put together the most complete rebellion to date, supported by the King of Castile, and he kind of demonstrated that Gascony objected to any government at all, not just de Montfort's government. Henry tried to get a tax to cover an expedition in 1252, which was refused but managed the following year to blag it by raising a feudal tax to pay for the knighting of his son. And then, wonder of wonders, Henry had a successful campaign, though it's notable that he adopted the very terror tactics that he had once criticised in de Montfort. During the war, he called de Montfort back to his side, and the two were reconciled. And finally, in August 1254, the last town of L'Arréal fell, and Henry married Edward to Eleanor of Castile which put an end to the Castilian threat. For the moment, then, Gascony was safe, though Gaston was still at large. De Montfort and Henry were again reconciled, but under some remarkably complicated financial terms, which would cause more pain later. This seems to confirm a few things about both men, with one big surprise. Henry was a ditherer capable of making some genuinely and surprisingly rubbish decisions. De Montfort was a ruthless, direct and unbending man, The one big surprise was Henry's military success. But any political capital he might have gained from this success was soon lost by the failure of the Sicilian affair. So, to explain. In 1250, Frederick II, the King of Sicily and the Holy Roman Emperor, had died. Just to show that I have a full and complete control of the English understatement, let me just say that the relationship between Frederick, Hohenstaufen and the papacy had been a little unsettled over the years. As a result the Pope would rather eat his own liver than see another Hohenstaufen on the throne of Sicily which they regarded as a papal fief. And luckily Frederick had left a very young son behind him. So the Pope looked for another candidate and his eyes lit on one Edmund, second son of Henry III of England. In March 1254 Henry III happily accepted the throne of Sicily on behalf of his son. Which all sounds fine and dandy of course except for a few things I haven't told you. The first big thing is that it committed him to paying the Pope an absolute whopping 135,000 marks. Second is that the money was needed because the Pope didn't actually have Sicily, so he had to go and get it first. And thirdly, this was a scheme cooked up by the Savoyar Foreign Party and Henry didn't seem fit, and Henry didn't see fit to involve any of his English barons in the decision-making process. Having said that, things were looking pretty exciting for a while, since Henry's brother, Richard of Cornwall, managed to get himself elected King of the Romans in 1256 by showering money around the German electors with the support of Eleanor of Provence. And being King of the Romans was basically the waiting room to being the Holy Roman Emperor. Meanwhile, all of this played a significant role in distracting Henry from Wales which was a shame, since actually he'd had a good decade in the 1240s. Because after the death of Llewellyn, events had gone his way, with the death of Llewellyn's successor, Dafydd in 1246. He'd then had plenty of opportunity to take permanent control. As it happens, Henry, in the disapproving words of Matthew Parris, preferred to spend his time relaxing at Westminster, and the treaties he signed in Wales were much more generous than they needed to be, but, nonetheless, he'd taken an area of north-eastern Wales called the Four Cantrefs, and Gwynedd was back in that normal nightmare of being split before four equal claimants. And meanwhile, royal power in the marches was much more dominant, with the break-up of the big Pembroke and Breo's lordships. So Henry's cup runneth over. But hey, guess what? He then botched it. Within Gwynedd... Llewellyn ap Griffith managed to make himself sole ruler in 1255, and by 1256 had taken back control of the four cantresses from Lord Edward no less. Everyone looked to Henry for leadership and didn't get it. He did manage to mount a campaign in 1257, build a castle, and then rush back home, but it left Llywelyn free to expel Henry's ally, Griffith ap Winwinwin, Win Win from Powys and declare himself Prince of Wales, the title that Llywelyn the Great had decided to be too inflammatory to use. He was soon to drop it again for a while as part of a diplomatic offensive, but without doubt Henry's stock once again fell from further evidence of feeble leadership. Henry's stock probably didn't have a lot further to fall, but fall further it did, because both of the continental schemes all came to naught and ended in the poo. Richard of Cornwall was never made emperor by the Pope, and made four brief visits to Germany with no power whatsoever. In 1255 Manfred, Frederick's illegitimate son, took control of Sicily, and in fact started threatening the papal states to the north, so there was clearly no chance of the scheme succeeding. Not that this meant, of course, that the Pope had any intention of giving up on it and letting Henry off the hook, and, nor that Henry himself had the sense to see this. But for everybody else... It was yet another nail in Henry's coffin. And as far as the chroniclers and the magnates of the kingdom were concerned, Henry was now considered, and I quote, useless and insufficient to control the affairs of the kingdom. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes, until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The powder keg was now well and truly primed, and left lying around casually waiting for a suitable spark. In February 1257, the magnates showed their growing distrust of the king. The royal councillors all took an oath not to agree to the alienation of any crown lands, which, given the number of crown lands available, was a jolly sensible decision. But they also took an oath at the same time not to accept any bribes in negotiating with the king. Basically, they were determined that the king wouldn't be able to divide and rule in negotiations about taxation or the sale of privileges. Then later in the same year, at a gathering of the magnates, a furious argument broke out between de Montfort and William de Valence, the most influential of the Lusignan court. Valence had raided de Montfort's lands, and de Montfort's steward had retaliated and grabbed the spoils back. Valance accused de Montfort of a treachery, of siding with the Welsh, and de Montfort exploded with fury and had to be restrained. All of this political turmoil was conducted against the background of a failed harvest in 1257. Now, it's a while since we've had a good, satisfactory quote about fear, despair, death and destruction, so this seems like a good time. Matthew Paris records at 1257 that, Owing to the shortage of food, an innumerable number of poor people died and dead bodies were found everywhere, swollen through famine and lying in fives and sixes and pigsties and dughills in the muddy streets. This is just in case you'd forgotten how close to the edge society could be. As a result, starving and poor villagers were flocking to London, searching for something to eat. And then the spark landed in the powder keg. It came in the form of Imer de Lusignan, the Bishop of Winchester. Imer was in the middle of a dispute with a fellow magnate, one John Fitzgeoffrey. The argument was about the control of an advalson for a village called Shear in Surrey, i.e. the right to appoint the local priest. John wasn't giving way, so the good bishop decided that maybe a little persuasion was required. So duly, on April 1st, 1, 1258, he sent a posse, in a kind and godly way, to give the men of John FitzGeoffrey an irreligious beating, to warn them about the dangers of obstructing the will of the bish. The Parliament of April 1258 therefore opened in ferment. John FitzGeoffrey demanded justice from the king. In response, Henry excused his friend the bish and refused to take the affair any further. John was incandescent with rage. Here was another example of Henry's refusal to exercise impartial royal justice. Here was another example of the arrogance of the Lusignor brothers. The Welsh military successes against Henry continued to the shame of the English magnates and provided further evidence of the king's failures. But the final denouement was provided by the Pope. The Pope started to get even tougher over the grant of the Sicilian kingdom. Given that Manfred had taken the thing, he now needed to win it back. He could choose Henry's military prowess or he could choose Henry's money to build his own army. Then guess what? He chose the cash route. He therefore demanded 90,000 marks, and if he didn't get it, excommunication and interdict would follow. Henry was nothing if not an obedient son of the Church, so he duly asked Parliament to raise a tax to get the money. It was enough, and the opposition began to organise themselves. On the 12th of April... A group of seven powerful magnates agreed to work together against the king. The document they made has survived, and here's the text. We, Richard, Earl of Gloucester, Roger Bigard, Earl Marshal, and the Earl of Norfolk, Simon de Montfort, Earl of Leicester, Peter of Savoy, John Fitzgilbert, and Peter de Montfort, make known to all people that we have sworn on the Holy Gospels and are held together by this oath. And we promise in good faith that each one of us, and all of us together, will help each other, both ourselves and those belonging to us. Doing right and taking nothing that we cannot take without doing wrong, saving our faith to our Lord and the Crown of England. So there you go, game on. I don't know about you, but the document strikes me in a couple of ways. Firstly, yes, great document, a holy endeavour filled with a religious fervour so typical of the Middle Ages but also, well, yes, quite a detailed definition that maybe suggests that all seven of them don't trust all seven of them to stick to their guns. But maybe that's what you call post-rationalisation. On the 30th of April, the Seven took action. In an incident of high drama, they marched in full armour into Westminster Hall. Henry, of course, took the whole thing like a man and whimpered, What is this, my lords? Am I, wretched fellow, your captive... But luckily for him, at this point, the earls weren't thinking of anything that radical, although what they wanted was radical enough. They demanded that a council, 24, be set up to propose and agree a programme of reform, and they wanted rid of the Lusignan. Roger Bigard demanded, Let the wretched and intolerable Poitevin and all foreigners flee from your face and ours, as from the face of a lion. Presumably, at this point, Peter de Savoy, or Pierre de Savoy, as he might be better known, looked around for a suitable mousehole to crawl into. But clearly, foreigner in this context did in fact mean Lucignol. Henry's backbone remained firmly where it had always been, and just like in 1234, Matthew Paris tells us that he acknowledged the truth of the accusations and humbled himself, declaring that he had been too often beguiled by evil counsel and made a solemn oath at the Shrine of St Edward, that he would fully and properly amend his old errors and show favour and kindness to his native-born subjects. At this point, then, de Montfort is just one of a group. But even from this time, he was set slightly apart. This is because of the complexity of his relationship with the king, as we have heard. But also, however passionate he was and would remain about the cause of reform, he simply couldn't help obsessing about money. So just three days later, de Montfort is already trying to get Henry to pay the debts he claims he owes, using the pressure afforded by the political situation. The barons insisted that Parliament should meet at Oxford in June, but before that could happen there were things that needed to be settled with the French, because Henry had decided that enough was enough and he needed to settle his argument and have a permanent peace. By this, he essentially meant he was giving up and accepting that his father really had lost all those lands and that that was the way it was. Because it had all got too much for poor old Henry. Trouble in Wales, his barons being nasty to him, the Sicilian thing. And anyway, Louis the Ninth was practically family and also very pious. So they had a lot in common and Henry rather liked him. He wanted out. The deal was that Henry would give up all the claims that frankly he had lost anyway Normandy, Maine, Anjou, Turenne, and Poitou. In return, he'd received Gascony and fief from the French crown. It depends on your viewpoint, I guess. I couldn't imagine Henry II or Richard the Lionheart accepting such a thing, but on the other hand, the treaty did little more than reflect the truth of the matter, and maybe you could see it as a statesmanlike agreement. The planned treaty gave de Montfort, though, an absolutely whopping opportunity to make a bit of cash on the side because as part of it, Louis IX insisted that all of Henry's family give up their rights, including sister Eleanor. So de Montfort had some leverage, and his wife, Henry's sister Eleanor, was clear that she'd only renounce her claim if hubby's debts were met in full. So here we are again, de Montfort hero or villain, he really, really screws Henry for every advantage he can find, with absolutely no ruth After the dramatic meeting at Westminster Hall, the Council of 24 tried to do its work. On May the 2nd, the King issued a royal letter that promised to reform the realm publicly. The reason for Henry's continually abject submission seems to have been his obsession with the Sicilian affair. He was desperate for the money the Pope was demanding. He was caught between the Baronial Rock and the Papal Hard Place. On one side, political neutering, and the other side, an eternity of damnation for his soul in the form of excommunication and interdict. For a religious man, this was no choice at all. So the letter said that the magnates, and I quote, would loyally use their influence with the community of the realm so that a common aid should be granted. It was clear that the king was no longer able to make independent decisions, independent of the Council of 24, that is to say. However, making progress with any practical reform was slow, if not non-existent, because at 12 all, the Council of 24 was pretty much bound to result in a draw. The magnates on the royal bench were stuffed with the aggressive in-your-face guys like William de Valence, who had absolutely zip interest in any political reform at all. So by June 1258, there were a few games in town. Political turmoil, peace treaties and the Welsh. The choice of Oxford in June for a meeting of Parliament was a very interesting one because it just so happened that a muster had been ordered for the following week at Chester so 137 tenants-in-chief would appear to a campaign in Wales so if they all had to go to Chester why not leave a week earlier and go to Oxford for the Parliament as well. As a result the Parliament at Oxford was the most socially diverse ever. It was not just the great magnates but also the lesser baronage and even poxy two-bit no-good cotton-picking knights. And these were people who had been at the sharp end of all of Henry and the Poitouin injustices. They were fired up and wanted to see the reform movement begin to deliver some genuine change and wanted to know just what all the messing around since April had been about. One more crucial point about this, all these knights and lesser barons had just as much interest in the relationship between themselves and the major magnates, making sure that the magnates themselves lived by the same rules as they were imposing on the king. The Parliament itself included a a full and frank exchange of views, you might say. It would have been a pretty rowdy affair, with metaphorical daggers drawn between the Lusignard and the king's supporters on one side and the reformers and the knights of the realm on the other. What came out of the Parliament was a series of draft agreements and proposals called the Provisions of Oxford. Now look, forget good old Magna Carta. Magna Carta is practically a manual for absolutist royal government compared to the provisions. Here they are. A new council of 15 was set up to bypass the problem of the hung council of 24 and the royal representatives were now reduced to just three. There now had to be three parliaments every year whether the king liked it or not. The major ministers of state were to be reinstituted, Justicia, treasurer, chancellor so that the king couldn't make those arbitrary decisions anymore. And most radically, it was the council who had the final say on who they were. Four knights were delegated in each shire to collect complaints against royal officials and take them to the justicia. So much more power and authority was delegated to the localities, and much more monitoring of royal power. Finally, the sheriffs. The approach of tax farming was abolished. Sheriffs now had to account for everything they submitted, and were paid a salary, were recruited for only one year and had to come from the local community. This is also a big one, the tax farming approach of the Sheriff's institutionalised abuse and corruption, because it was up to the Sheriff to generate his own profit by screwing the people in his area as much as he could get away with. He basically had carte blanche to make as much money as he could. The end of the Parliament came suddenly and dramatically. The Lucianian brothers had been watching all of this with growing horror. This was most definitely not the way it was all supposed to go. They swore an oath together by the death and wounds of Christ that they would not give up the lands that the king had given them. This was the moment de Montfort had been waiting for. Either you lose your castles or your heads, he growled, and the council agreed that the Lusignan were history. In the finest tradition of John Wayne, James Stuart and Gregory Peck, the castle rustlers were run out of town. The Lusignan fled to Winchester, and the barons made haste to follow them. But before they could go, they needed to seal the agreement, and so we get all the solemnity of a medieval oath. They all stood around holding tapers and swearing to uphold the agreements they'd made. The Archbishop of Canterbury threatened damnation on all those who broke them, and they threw their tapers to the ground. The King and Prince Edward took the same oath, Edward apparently happily, and Henry no doubt absolutely boiling with Angevin fury. England may not have been turned into a republic, but it was now officially no longer an autocracy. Billy the Conk would have turned in his grave, though of course that would have meant he'd have spilled his guts out all over the place again. Now by the way everyone, you can go to the website and read the text of the provisions of Oxford and the oath, courtesy of Kim, who dug them out for me. Thank you Kim. And everyone else, I can hardly imagine your excitement. Print them out. Gather together with your friends and relatives to read and celebrate one of the fundamental documents on the road to liberty. Or maybe not. But either way, it's there, should you be interested. So the magnates gathered their household knights in their arms and rode out on the road to Winchester. When they caught up with them, they demanded that Guy and Geoffrey de Lusignan leave now without passing go. Valence and Imer could stay until the reform process was finished, but they'd have to be in custody. The Lusignans snarled in fury and all fled for France together. On their tails was Henry de Montfort, son of Simon, who chased them all the way through France until Louis IX stepped in and gave them sanctuary. We've not seen the last of them, however. To give you a clue, one of them will be buried in Westminster Abbey. So I think that's a good place to stop, and next time we can carry on with the revolution as it all becomes increasingly radical. But who knows, gentle listeners, when that next time will be? There are a few things here. It's summer, so there are family holidays to go on, camping trips to do, Olympics to visit, all that sort of thing. Then there's the job with all those busy things I have to do. It's just possible I'll get an episode out on the 5th of August, but don't count on it. And if I don't, then Lord knows. But possibly not until the 1st of September, which is seven, yes, seven weeks away. Sorry about that, everyone. And I will miss you, but have a great summer. Unless, of course, you are in England, of course, in which case have a wet summer this also has nothing to do with history and i don't know why i'm telling you really but for everyone not in the uk we are basically drowning over here the heavens have opened and for three months a torrent of water has descended if you're coming to the olympics bring a snorkel and a bucket finally thank you to jane for your donation and to kim again for digging out all that stuff and hopefully i'll see you all on the 5th of august and meanwhile have a good seven weeks and good luck